Hello. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all today. Yeah, after the rains, we're here. It's good. Uh, who am I? I'm Chad Riggins. I've uh, been a member of this church uh, since my childhood. I've grown up here, and um, it's a privilege for me to come up here and speak to you today, try to deliver something that I feel God has um, been, been put on my heart, um, just in terms of what our heart's stance is on our giving, on finances, on who, who God puts in our lives that we need to help. And um, um, Pastor Michael's uh, at a pastor's retreat this morning, so he asked if I could come up here. And it's, like I said, a privilege for me to do this. Um, in the next few weeks before the Christmas season, we are talking about money, and I think that's a good time to talk about that, as we have received the greatest gift we could ever receive through Jesus Christ. And, uh, and now, you know, how do we let that impact our hearts and the way we interact with, with others, how we show them our love? I thought last week was very uh, encouraging to see the generosity of the church. We packed hampers. There's so many uh, needs in our community, and uh, it's great to see us doing some little part of that. Uh, last week, um, Grant also had a video up here. It's a bit of a, pr a primer for today's message. A lot of the words spoken were to remind us that we have a generous God who has made enough for all. And I think today, I hope today, will be a reinforcement of these thoughts. Now, while I was preparing this message on Friday, I checked my Facebook feed to find this post by someone in our community, posted on Mission Neighbors Facebook page. And you know what? It, it, it literally stopped me from what I was writing. Uh, it's on the screen behind me. Maybe it's because of the mindset I was in, but it really told me everything I needed to know about what this sermon series about our relationship with money is about, with our trust in God, with our hope in God, hope for things now, and hope for things in the future. In my mind, we could just put this up on the screen and reflect on it for 20 minutes and let the Spirit do the rest. This is a person in our community, right? It probably says more in these 17 words than I will do in my next 4,000 or so. So we need to be less stressed and worried about our financial situations. We need to be less concerned about temporal comfort and security, especially as it relates to finances. It seems the more we concern ourselves with our own personal comfort, the more stressed and worried we seem to be about our lives here on Earth. I think we come to find that our possessions start to possess us and not the other way around. God tells us in his word over and over to trust in his provision that he is faithful to provide us all things. So why is that so hard for us? It is because this need to take more for oneself is very deep in our nature and we're going to explore a little bit of this this morning. As I wrestled through this topic, I've been made acutely aware of how much finance talk we see and we participate in. All of my social media feeds, in some adder pitch, are aimed at increasing my financial standing or future-proofing my lifestyle. My conversations with friends and family, they keep ending up on this topic. You know, inflation, cost of housing, interest rates, investments, tax strategies. I think my seven-year-old son knows more about inflationary forces than I did in my 30s. 
Many of the financial stresses we face today are the result of us having a short-term view. I need what's best for me today, and the rest of you, you can find your own. This view turns into the actions we take, and what actions we take really do reflect the hearts that they're attached to. Do we see our hearts facing up and willing to invest in bringing God's kingdom closer to, to the earth? Or are they bowing low, being weighed down by a coin purse? For as Jesus said in Matthew 6, we cannot serve two masters. So how deep does our want, our desire, and our needs to be comfortable and secure go? How far will the heart go to shed the stress and anxiousness of not having enough? Will it go as far as disobedience towards God? As far as endangering one's own life? as far as teaching the next generation to do the same. So we're going to head back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you don't know, are the words that God delivered to uh, the Jewish people and it make, to make them aware of sin or wrongs, wrongdoings, to help them understand God's boundaries for what a thriving humanity looks like. And so let's go back there, look at these words, and see if they're relevant for us today. All right, Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows on that day you eat from it and your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one's wife, one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband. We saw this in the video last week, so I won't spend too much time. In the beginning, God planted a garden, perfect climate, friendly animals, no noisy or nosy neighbors, endless supply of food, no weeding. What we could imagine paradise to be, but probably way better. No stress, anxiety, perfect comfort, security, all their needs met. But it was in paradise that man's heart erred, and they decided to do the one thing that God had asked them not to do. They had been given everything except the knowledge of good and evil. And now knowing there was just one thing that God had kept from them, they took together and they ate and they were thrown from paradise. The door locked behind them. Such is the want of our hearts to obtain more than what has been given. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in paradise, yet they chose to distrust God's command, disobey what God knew best for them. They chose just one more thing. And so is it with us? Always one more thing than we have now. If I could only achieve this, if I could only just get that, if I could only have $100 more, no, no, $1,000 more, no, 10000 more, I would be satisfied. Life would be perfect. It's a lie, and I think we know it, but we need help to push this thought from our hearts. We'll go now to Genesis 19, verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay where Sorry, do not stay anywhere in the surrounding area. Escape or you will be swept away. 
Here we have one of the ultimate displays of God's judgment on a people disobedient to him and his precepts. They were violent and cruel. They were sexually deviant beyond measure. We're told that their sin was exceedingly grave. And in Abraham's appeal to God against its destruction, there were no, no more than 10 moral people found in the region. The people in the cities of the plain in Sodom and Gomorrah were absolutely detestable in their treatment of each other. Yet we find this comment just a little later in verse 26. But Lot's wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. But why would she look back and what was she looking for? I think there's some, something in this story for us to reflect on. Can anyone here tell me what the preconditions to Sodom's violence and sexual immorality were? Do we remember? Why may she have looked back? We'll go now to Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, plenty of food, carefree ease, and she did not help the poor and needy. So they were haughty and committed abominations before me, Therefore, I removed them as I saw fit. Affluence. Greedy, lazy, narcissistic consumers. Me, 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 all about me. This was the heart of the people of Sodom. Their violent and deviant sexual ethics, they were but the symptoms of, and they were not the cause. They were the outworkings of the hearts of the people. But hey, you know what? They must have had quite the economy quite a lot of technology, quite the lifestyle, bougie to the extreme, I would say. And Lot's wife looked back, but the question we need to wrestle is, would I? Do you think she looked back fondly on the violence and the sexual immorality? Is this what her heart was attached to? Probably not. Could she compromise on the immorality, if only to be left in a comfortable state, position, to have her needs met, to have and keep what was hers? Probably. She looked back longingly to what temporal comforts she had lost and not ahead to God's future provision and promise of safety. What is it that would cause us to look back instead of forward? What are we so attached to here that we would put ourselves in grave danger and ignore the clear commands of God? What is it for us that we put our blinders on for? What in our own society do we say, well, you know what, that doesn't affect me, or I can tolerate this, you do you, let me do me. For what? For comforts of food and entertainment? For our financial security? For what do we do this for? What's mine is mine is short term, and it excludes looking towards the kingdom of God as promised, which is our future. And it always ends in our destruction. It always forgets the poor. Now, how about the people chosen by God, the Israelites, the Jews as we call them today? Certainly their, their position as God's special people might keep them from such errors, right? After all, they were not like the other nations. Uh, they had just been delivered from slavery, from the harsh hand of forced labor in the Egyptians. Moses having led them through the Red Sea towards the land God had promised them. 
But very soon after this, the need for material comfort and security caused anxiety and stress amongst the people. And in Exodus 16, Numbers 14, we can find this. But the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat, where we ate bread and were full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Wishing they had died in Egypt, that they were still in bondage and slavery, because maybe they had better food and better shelter. Because their hearts had an attachment to the things of earth, rather than trusting in the promises of our living God. And their rebellion didn't stop there. Even though God did hear their pleas, and he sent them meat and bread each night to sustain each person for one day. Instead, their ungratefulness and faithlessness continued, and their hearts were made afraid to go into the land that God had promised them. They said again with one voice in Numbers 14:4, We should choose a leader, and we should go back to Egypt. And what did this mistrust in God's provision get them? Verse 28, or sorry, verse 29. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years or more. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them to enjoy the land you have rejected. But for you, you will fall in the wilderness. Their hearts first grumbled for basic necessities for themselves, and when God provided these, they grumbled again, not trusting God with the security for themselves and their children. When have we grumbled and said to God, my life was easier or more financially secure before you came into it? Have we said in our hearts, I wish to go back to Egypt, whatever that is for us, though I was a slave, but at least I could partake like the rest of the world does? When have we said for the sake of others, I need more, but really we meant it for me? So that grumbling generation died in the wilderness as God had foretold and their children were to inherit the land. I'd like to pause here for just a moment to let us think about what we teach our children about our heart's posture towards finances, security, our future. For the kids had to wander alongside their grumbling parents. Are we grumbling at home with them near? Or are we talking about God's abundance in our lives? Do we vocalize our thankfulness beyond just a mealtime prayer? Or do we mention that we need more of this or that, or that we wish that our lives were more like our wealthy cousins or neighbors? Do we give them a hope for the future that says we are building God's kingdom on earth and instructing them to work hard and take care of each other, take care of the poor, take care of those in need? Or do we give them the standard formula of do good in school so you can go to university, so you can get a good job, so you can buy a house? a dream that is now so quickly fading that some of them are lost to hopelessness. Are, the, are those life steps that I listed in and of themselves sinful and wrong? No, but we cannot teach that their future is only measured by what they can t obtain here on the earth. So after the 40 years wandering, we read in Joshua 6 and 7 of what happens to a member of that next generation. Having wandered with that generation and seeing them punished for their sins, some kept that same short-term heart posture as their parents. 
God calls them into the land that he promised them, but he included a clear commandment to them that some of the spoils are designated to God, that no man should possess what is meant for him. Um, verse 19, but all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and the iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go to the treasury of the Lord. But you know, the heart of man can be so stubborn, so anxious about what I can get for me, even when they see the results of others who have done the same thing. And then Joshua 7, verse 1, For Achan took some of the designated things, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So Achan said, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful robe from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I wanted them, and I took them. Tragically, Achan and his family were stoned for that action. Such a harsh punishment demands that we ask ourselves, have we stolen from God and given it to ourselves? Have we chosen sin and disobedience for our own material gain? Do our words and our actions teach our children to do likewise? So after going through these OT examples, I, can ho I hope we can see just how deep that desire is in us for earthly comfort and security, how our hearts are so easily fixated on the here and now that we would act against God's will and mistrust his provisions. We can also learn that how the individual behaves and acts, so does the society. A statue of mammon does not show up in our town square without first being an altar in our homes. Matthew 6. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break and steal. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. In Isaiah 40 through 55, we see God's prophet Isaiah foreshadow the coming savior of the people of Israel. The one who would overthrow the oppression and the scarcity the, the, a promise to them that, that they would be once again in a land of milk and honey. But when he came, the Romans were governing over the Jews. Israel felt this oppression and scarcity. And, um, and many, of the, many, of their Jew, many of the Jews expected their Savior to come as a Savior King who would overthrow and bring back their earthly privilege. But he didn't. Instead, he gave us verses like the one we have behind us. He taught that the rich have already received the reward on earth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He taught us not to be worried or anxious about material needs, for we have the heavenly Father that knows each one of these. Ultimately, the Jews rejected his message and teachings and hung him on a cross. And to this day, they're still fighting to be restored in power on the earth and totally missed that God's plan was to provide their hearts relief from stress and anxiety through Jesus Christ, that God would provide comfort and security for all peoples and all nations through faith in his Son.
So after Jesus' resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit to strengthen and empower his newly formed church. And he promised even greater miracles than the one he performed were to be seen in this body of believers. And to me, one of the greatest testimonies to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit can be found in Acts 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but they were common property to them. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as one had need. This is such a powerful testimony, is it not, to the power of God, as directed by the Spirit to lift the eyes and hearts of man from the earth below up to the heavens above. We seek another's good as much as our own, to trust God with the here and now and our future too, to use what we've been given to bless others. I almost don't believe this story can be true. But without the Spirit, without the power of God manifest in our hearts, without repentance from our natural and inherited posture, to go and take care of myself first, we are hopeless and will fall into this again and again. It's, our, it's like our default nature. And you know what? The Western Church did just this. They tried to exist without the spirit. The spirit. They tried to take more for herself than she was willing to give back. And on October 31st, so Halloween, it's Reformation Day, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Castle. And from there, the Reformation took off like a wildfire. And one of the major topics for reform on that paper was exactly what we've been speaking of. Indulgences were money taken from the parishioners, and in, re- and in return, the church taught that loved ones who had died would have to spend less time in the purifying fires of purgatory. More money means less agony for your mom, for your dad, for your sister, for your friend. Who wouldn't pay for such a service? Now, did that money go towards more good works? No, that money went to the priesthood so they could live more lavishly than the kings on the earth. What an absolute and total blot on the dress of Christ's bride. One small drop at a time, one small sin, posing as doctrine, getting bigger and bigger, as one drop falls on the other. We would do well to remember here that we're not immune to such foolishness either. Is CBC walking the road leading to the church we see in Acts, or are we walking towards a repeat of 1517? And what is the church but a collection of individuals, their hearts and attitudes? I have my own heart issues when it comes to where I store my treasure and what I find my comfort in. And to be honest, just preparing this message has been a great examination of where my heart has been focused. A couple years ago, I finally achieved somewhat of a personal financial goal, and it felt good. It felt good to be more comfortable with finances, less stressed about the day-to-day expenses of life. And you know what? I thought I could start spending more on me. I've never had nice clothing, but I've always desired it. 
Because growing up without any excess meant most of what I wore were hand-me-downs. And I remember being teased and sometimes ridiculed for this. So that's what I did. I replaced almost my whole wardrobe with items that I desire. My reasons for purchasing were good in my mind. They, uh, they were they're being made by people like me. They had ethical supply chains, natural materials, etc., etc. But while I was talking and meditating on this message, Jesus' words came to my mind so clearly. He said that the flowers of the field do not spin or weave, but they are clothed greater than Solomon, the richest man to have ever lived on the earth. Isn't that true? Even the flowers which are here today and gone the next, God clothes in splendor. Are we not much more precious to him than flowers? And you know what? God has been faithful here to remind me, to help me understand this. So next year, our family will be on a very tight budget with Laura on maternity and a mortgage renewal. But you know what? I praise God for this, that I might loosen my attachment to these things to keep me from wanting more and more, letting my consumption end up consuming me. For I now know where this short-term attitude leads us. And to you, this might seem like a silly example, but reflect it back to yourself. You know, what financial decisions are you making, even small ones that tie you tighter to the ground? Another reason for using myself as an example here is to encourage and talk about these things with one another. You know, maybe not at the Christ, uh, Christmas dinner table, but certainly within our community groups and other believers that we trust and we believe are filled with the Spirit. We need each other in our lives to keep us accountable, keep us working towards the kingdom. I think we often confuse the word personal with private. We say that our finances are personal. Basically, we're saying stay out of them. They are personal in that they are unique to you in your situation, your character, your needs, but we shouldn't make them private. They should not be a locked door that none can enter, for it is when we're alone that the tempter comes to talk with us. We may even have to call to each other to repent, to turn away from our wrongdoings, to ask God for forgiveness and have faith that he will forgive, for we believe in a gracious and loving God. Have faith that he will remove the anxiety and stress about what you need and provide for you exactly what you require, and without us having to fall into the pits mentioned in these examples. So if any of these OT stories have been true in your life, Ask God to restore your heart. If you can relate to Adam and Eve having more than enough, but taking more for yourself, we need to repent of this. If you can relate to Lot's wife, ignoring sin and longing for earthly comforts, we need to repent of this. If you can relate to the Israelites grumbling, even though God had been faithful to them, we need to repent. If we can relate to Achan, Taking what was meant for God to enrich yourself, repent. Are we working to advance the kingdom of ourselves or the kingdom of God? Are our hearts looking for eternal comfort and security or what is temporal and soon to pass away? 
Please don't take this message to mean that we shouldn't work hard or pursue that promotion or acquire new clients for our business or that we must all live in poverty to please God. This, meant, this message was meant to be a heart check. Am I regenerated? Am I being sanctified? Am I reflecting the teachings that Jesus gave us? Read Matthew 6 again if you want to know these teachings. Am I acting as the Spirit prompts my heart in generosity towards others? Or is my heart still bound to my old will and my old nature? Many of the teachings on money that Jesus gave are found in Matthew chapter 6. Here also I found such a beautiful passage to counter our anxieties and refocus our eyes on eternity. It's going to be familiar to many of you, and my hope is that we can speak it together today. But I'd like to try saying it three times together. Now I'm aware that in the verses preceding, Jesus asks us not to pray like the Gentiles through thoughtless repetition. I feel, though, we need to three, pray three times to shake off the thoughtlessness that this prayer has for some of us. The first time will come right from our memories, our mouths moving, probably without much intention. The second time, I hope we'll catch a few glimpses of what Jesus is teaching us through this prayer, especially in regards to our heart's inclination to be stressed about not having enough for ourselves. And the third time, Let's let each phrase sink deeply into our hearts. Let it loosen the chains that hold it down. Let it, make us, let it action us towards making the kingdom of God here and now. Matthew 6. Now, I'll be reading from the NASB, but please join with me if you have it memorized in, in your favorite translation, etc. Please join me. Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Out, maybe without the thine. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on the earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who debt against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last time. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So I want to thank you for bearing with me through this topic. And my hope and my prayer is that we take just one more step towards trusting God's provision and one step away from ourselves, that our eyes would be lifted up just one degree higher from the ground. It's difficult to imagine us being the church from Acts 4. With man, this is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. So go and do as he gives us strength.
worship you.